few words on a piece of paper. A sudden moment of clarity. A life changed forever. Throughout the ages, people have been challenged, inspired, moved and transformed by the words of the world's divine educators. My name is Sean Hinton, and in Season 2 of this podcast, Moments of Meaning, I talk to people whose lives have been profoundly affected by the sacred writings of the Baha'i Faith and ask them about the story of how it happened. Today's guest is Ken Bowers, who is the Chief Administrative Officer of the Baha'is of the United States. Born and raised in the USA, Ken lives and works in Chicago, Illinois. Ken, will you read the passage for us, please? You must turn attention more earnestly to the betterment of the conditions of the poor. Do not be satisfied until each one with whom you are concerned is to you as a member of your family. Regard each one either as a father, or as a brother, or as a sister, or as a mother, or as a child. If you can attain to this, your difficulties will vanish. You will know what to do. Ken, this is a beautiful passage with a clear instruction to all of us as to how we should approach inequality and address it in the most personal way. But can you tell me about your own story and why this passage is particularly meaningful to you? Well, I think the real meaning of this passage for me comes in the context of the time and place in which I was raised. I grew up in a small town in the state of Georgia, which is in the southern part of the United States, but also during the height of the civil rights era. And of course, for most of us, we're aware that during the civil rights era, there was a great, great push for social justice, particularly uh, to end discrimination against people of minority races in the United States. And where I lived, of course, African Americans, who f- for more than a century had suffered severely from what amounted to an apartheid state. Uh, laws against uh, commingling and socializing and using public utilities, certainly voting and so on, such that there was a world of great separation between the white and the black races. And it was to the extent that in spite of the fact that we were brought daily into contact with each other, in a sense we lived in different worlds and everything around me in my existence suggested that the white and the black people of the South could never come together. Except I also grew up in a family that believed very differently about this. And so in the midst of all of the the tumult and the, the difficulty that was going on around me, I also had the experience of growing up with a small group of people whose aim was to actually achieve unity and and amity and love among people of different races. And more than a belief, it was something that they put into practice. And it was because of that experience that I came to understand the importance of this quote. I'll give you some examples of this. Uh, I grew up in uh, a segregated neighborhood. It was all white. 
And such was the uh, social condition of the time that simply to invite a person who was an African-American to one's home in other than the capacity of servitude, that is, if they were not coming to service in some way, the, the household, then it was an extremely unusual, not to say controversial thing to do. And if neighbors saw people coming in from the front door who were not white, uh, the front door, of course, indicating that they were your social equals rather than the back door, this caused great consternation and anxiety. So even something like that was considered uh, uh, highly undesirable. And yet my, my parents and the small group of people that they had as their friends very much believed in the equality, the social equality of, of black and white people. And so they made a habit of frequently inviting people over to the home for uh, the purpose of building friendship and building connection. And all of this was inspired by the teachings of the Baha'i faith, the primary teaching of which is the oneness of humanity, the full equality uh, of all human beings, recognizing that we are all children of God, all endowed with an immortal soul, and therefore all deserving of, of honor and, and respect and friendship. So, growing up, what I experienced amidst a, an ocean, I should say, of prejudice and hostility between uh, white and black people, and I'm, I would say primarily white people aimed at black people, Another island, uh, an island in that ocean, where there was a community of people who, black and white, socialized together, prayed together, educated their children together, spent time together, and in every way behaved as a family to each other. So later on, growing up, uh, around 12, I remember reading this passage for the first time, regard each one as a father, or as a brother, or as a sister, or as a mother, or as a child. If you can attain to this, your difficulties will vanish. You will know what to do. And I came to appreciate the importance of this statement, which is a statement by Abdu'l-Bahá, the son of Baha'u'lláh, the founder of the Baha'i Faith, that unless we learn to love each other like family, we really can't achieve the change that we want to see in the world. What did this all mean to you as a young child, especially when you looked out and saw a world that was so starkly different from that vision of justice and family in the quote? As a child, I, I very clearly remember that uh, in my neighborhood, uh, which was all white and uh, very much uh, Christian, that is uh, largely uh, Baptist or evangelical-oriented, my own peers, that is to say, little boys and girls of my own age, repeated very commonly what they heard in their own households about the inferiority of African-Americans to themselves. And as a matter of fact, I even recall uh, little kids, you know, fresh-faced, you know, coming out of Sunday school and playing with me in the afternoon uh, having imbibed lessons in Sunday school about the superiority of the white race over the black race. And, you know, of course, there are 
citations from the scripture, I suppose, that can be taken out of context, which uh, the, the, the ministers of the time used to use to validate this idea that the white pra- race was intrinsically superior to the black race, and therefore the separation of the races was necessary and according to the will of God. So even my own little peers, my age, very much believed in this and uh, believed that uh, African Americans were uh, not to be socialized with, not to be taken seriously, not to be thought of truly as human. Yet, at the same time, my parents ensured that I actually socialized with African American children when I was growing up. And in that world, we were friends and uh, we were family. In fact, I, I distinctly remember referring to the parents of my black friends as my uncles and aunts. And I, I don't mean that in a the typical you know southern way like in gone with the wind or something but actually i thought they were members of my family and didn't know really that there was a distinction that this is really honestly the truth so i immediately saw as a child i remember from my earliest days this sharp distinction between what other kids felt and what i was actually experiencing what was the difference between those two well none of those white kids had black friends i did And so I saw that the black kids were human beings. They had essentially the same sense of humor and the same interests and the same aspirations as I did. I knew their parents. My parents knew them, and we were all friends. And so in spite of what everyone around me was saying, I was having a very, very different experience. Now, I paid a price for that in a certain sense, but I also learned a lot from it in another sense. And I'll give an example of that. As I said, you know, my Parents used to make sure that we um, socialized and uh, mingled with people of different backgrounds, even uh, to the extent of inviting people in our homes, which at the time was highly controversial. And uh, for our birthdays, we would invite these same friends. And I very distinctly remember growing up when uh, our neighbors boycotted our birthdays. That is to say, they didn't allow their children to attend our birthdays out of fear that we would invite black kids to come to the birthdays. Well, you know, they were right that we were inviting them, but they were wrong to be afraid. So what happened was my own friends that I played with every day in school, and I saw them all the time in the neighborhood, didn't even come to birthdays because of this separation. Now, in a sense, that was probably not a good thing. But in another sense, it really taught me the importance of taking a stand, that is, not being too swayed by uh, majority opinion, if majority opinion, as it was in this case, clearly is against common sense and experience and fundamental truth about human reality. So, uh, it wasn't fun when it was happening, but in the long term, it taught me a lot about what it means to be a human being and to uh, live according to a certain principle. So, going back to this quote, this was the missing element. They didn't have an opportunity, these white kids, to think of these others that they considered as others, in an alien sense, as members of their own family. Fortunately, and no credit to me, but credit to my parents, I did have that opportunity. And so, I grew up with a very, very different view, not only of the way the world Uh, what was wrong with the way the world was, but what was possible in the world. If it were that we could all adopt this 
same mindset, if we could all think of others as family and as, as uh, intimate associates, how the world would be different. And um, I think the 50 years or so since those days have borne it out because uh, as one person uh, said very recently to me, no heart was ever transformed by an idea. It was transformed by friendship coupled with an idea. And it's the friendship, really, that's the, the ingredient. The way of living described in the quote of seeing each and every person as a member of one's own family, that approach to racial unity within the Baha'i community can't have been easily accepted by the white community around you. What was it like living as Baha'is in that way at that time? When I was very little, my parents lived in a duplex, uh, that is to say, uh, a house which is two houses in one, and on one side of the duplex were my mother and father and my brother and me, and on the other side of the duplex was my mother's sister, so my aunt and her husband. And uh, he was going to uh, medical school, or actually he was in medical residency at the time, and every week uh, they and we hosted an informational meeting about the Baha'i faith, which uh, we call a fireside, and it's the word itself is designed to uh, 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 indicate, you know, that sort of that sense of intimacy of a fireside talk, where people who are friends get together and they talk about uh, spiritual issues and have meaningful conversation, designed around learning about the Baha'i faith, but also the connection of the teachings of the Baha'i faith faith with issues of concern that are going on in society. So, in these informational meetings, uh, we would invite not only members of the Baha'i faith, but members of the public, people who were friends and uh, contacts of ours. And because of the belief in the oneness of humanity, which was a central part of those meetings, these were integrated meetings. So, uh, African Americans came and whites came, and soon in the neighborhood, these meetings became notorious. They came to the attention of uh, neighbors. And before too long, we began to receive threatening phone calls from the neighbors who attempted to be anonymous. But as my parents and my aunt and uncles say, they were able to recognize the voices that were calling, disguise them as they tried on the telephone, uh, warning us that if we continued having these integrated meetings, then something was going to happen, and, and so on and so forth. And this went on for a number of weeks, but it didn't change what we were doing because, you know, we were used to that idea, and uh, we had received threats uh, before. Now, it wasn't to say that there was no anxiety involved at all, because we all knew, you know, given the time in which it was, that anything was possible. But nevertheless, uh, the family decided to continue with the meetings. Till one night, one of these meetings was getting underway, and there was a living room full of people. This time it was on the side of the duplex where my aunt and uncle lived, and uh, the meeting was getting underway. Uh, the sun was just about going down, uh, and so there was a twilight uh, atmosphere, and as usual, it was integrated with black and white people beginning to get comfortable and seated together to have an evening of discussion about the Baha'i faith. And just as it was getting underway, the telephone rang, and my aunt went to pick up the phone, and on the other end of the phone was this voice that said, essentially, 
okay, this is it, you know, we've had it, we're coming over right now, and we're going to do something about it. Now, as it happened, the telephone was uh, in the kitchen, and out of the kitchen window, which faced the backyard, she could look across her own backyard to the backyard of neighbors behind us, who we knew were among those who had been phoning in these threats. And as she looked at that house, she could see people actually getting into a couple of pickup trucks carrying shotguns and what looked like dynamite as well. So she knew it was them calling, and she saw these people getting into the pickups and knew that we had a very serious situation on our hands now. So she hung up the phone, quickly picked up the phone again, and called the police. The police said, uh, well, ma'am, you know, one shift has ended and another shift uh, is just beginning and we're not sure how soon we're going to be able to send somebody out there. So, in other words, what she was being told was, we're not going to help you. Now, this was a thing that would happen in that time and place in the deep, deep south. So, she knew she wasn't going to get any help from the police. The next call she made was to her husband, who happened to be um, at the hospital on call, and told him what was going on. And then she went into the living room where everyone was seated and uh, getting ready for the day. And she said simply this, without any further explanation, she said, okay, I'm going to turn off the light. Everybody get down on the floor. Don't say a word and don't move until I tell you otherwise. So click, the light went out and everybody got on the floor. And that was it. Just in darkness and in silence, everybody just sat there. Now, as that happened, she saw that the pickup trucks with their headlights off, pulled down the road and into the front lawn onto the grass in front of the house with the windows rolled down and shotguns pointed out. So sure enough, they were there and they were there to cause trouble. And uh, not knowing what to do, she just stayed quiet. The house was dark and she just waited to see what would happen next. Well, interestingly, they just sat for a minute. They pulled back out of the lawn, the two pickup trucks, and they drove off. A couple of minutes later, they came back around one more time. Still, the lights were off, and they hesitated for a moment and then moved on again. But then, after a couple more minutes, finally, the police did show up with my uncle, uh, who uh, had friends in among the higher-ups in Augusta, Georgia, and convinced them to send the police so they waylaid these pickup trucks and diffused the situation, and everything was fine. Uh, my uncle came in. My aunt realized that the danger had dissipated. Finally, after a considerable amount of time had passed, she clicked the living room light back on and said, okay, everybody take your seats. <laughs> and only then did she explain what had been happening that whole time. And one of the people who was not uh, a member of the Baha'i faith uh, said something funny, uh, said that, oh, I, I thought this is just what Baha'is do. You, you turn off the light and you sit on the floor and you meditate for a while, kind of a new agey sort of a thing. So having no idea that there had been any danger. And so it caused quite a laugh. But what was impressive to everyone there was the idea that knowing that these threats had been coming in, nevertheless, uh, the family had uh, staked their ground. You know, that is, they, they continued to have the meetings. They didn't back down. And when people saw the commitment to equality and to uh, upholding this principle 
uh, of human dignity and, and, and friendship and amity. It was deeply impressive. And in that moment, several of the people who were there committed themselves to this vision. You know, people who were new, who didn't really know us, but they could say, well, this really transformed my heart and this is the way to do it. And so that was a very early lesson in the importance of standing by a, a principle like this. And so it's one of many examples that, that I could tell that used to happen in those days. Let me ask you to read the quote again. You must turn attention more earnestly to the betterment of the conditions of the poor. Do not be satisfied until each one with whom you are concerned is to you as a member of your family. Regard each one either as a father or as a brother or as a sister or as a mother or as a child. If you can attain to this, your difficulties will vanish. You will know what to do. Does this mean something different to you now than it did when you were a child? When I was younger, I would say that my uh, orientation to this quote was that of an individual. That is to say, I looked at myself and I looked at my own heart and I tried as best I could to call myself to account and to strive to think in terms of how I treat other people as an individual. That is, do I make an effort uh, to um, reach out and, and make friends with people whose backgrounds are different from mine, uh, who uh, who might not otherwise conveniently come my way because of the conditions in our society, but that I make a special effort to do that and in my life to reflect this notion that uh, we are one human family. So as an individual, I think that was an important thing, you know, for a child. Over the course of time, though, what I've come to realize better is that my own progress as an individual and the progress of any individual, for that matter, is intimately tied to a, a collective effort. In other words, it's not so much anymore for me that transformation comes from the um, aggregate of individual hearts who are trying to do the right thing, individual people. Although that's an important dimension of it, what now I appreciate is that it's also the result of collective will, uh, collective decision-making, collective um, consultation and problem-solving. So to the individual dimension now for me has been added the community dimension, uh, how we together help each other. I can now appreciate more than I could as a child how important it is for me to be a better listener to others, uh, to um, walk with others uh, on a path where I benefit from their insights and their experiences, which can enrich me and uh, make me a better person. But then hopefully in some way, they too can benefit from whatever perspective or experience I might have had and do it in a, in a systematic, planful strategic way, uh, that is, really have a pattern of life that uh, is expressed in a community and collectively that begins to shape identity and shape consciousness, where all of us together are working for a goal of justice. I would like to add also that another 
yet another dimension, and it, I think, has come from my service as uh, an administrator in the Baha'i faith in the United States, has been the role of institutions of society also, uh, our civil institutions, as well as our religious institutions, in providing um, uh, environments in which the work of individuals and the work of communities can prosper, environments where uh, people are explicitly welcomed and encouraged, and um, where their energies are, are, are coordinated in such a way that the aggregate of all of this effort really is taking us forward to new horizons uh, of justice and of equality. So I'd say those are, those are important dimensions that have been added to my thinking since I was a child. That's so interesting. You describe the development of your own understanding of this quote from an individual response to the community and then on to seeing the importance of this to institutions of society. And that seems to mirror the growing awareness that much of the inequality and injustice we see in society today is not just real at an individual level, but also at a systemic level. So, so we see systemic inequality, systemic racism. We see the ways in which these individual human injustices have become structural features of society. And as such, it would seem that they're less amenable to change simply by well-meaning individuals improving themselves. And maybe they require more fundamental changes in the structure of society. Sorry for the long question, but what would such a structurally just society look like? It's a very complicated question to think about uh, systemic racism, which uh, I personally believe is a reality in the United States. Uh, as an individual, it's hard to know, you know, what to do. Yet one does think, well, it, it would take a community uh, and uh, an aggregate of individuals to change what are large and well-entrenched systems uh, in our country that, um, whether we are aware of it or not, do promote uh, or, let's say, facilitate in inequalities uh, between people. And there are many examples of that. Uh, we have our educational system. We have our healthcare system in the United States. We have um, our residential system in the United States. And any of them you could look at separately as, and say that uh, on examination that they are tilted uh, in favor of uh, the dominant group, the white group, and uh, against others. Uh, our penal system similarly would be the same. So the question is, you know, how do you approach these things? How do you address that? I think there, there's more than one way to look at it. One, of course, is that those who um, have callings in these various areas as individuals certainly can make a difference, and individuals do make a difference all the time. So it's not to say that uh, an individual who is conscientious, who is clear-sighted, uh, uh, who is courageous, cannot do important things to um, build uh, consensus and uh, attack and, and uh, successfully overcome some elements of the system that are uh, detrimental to the purpose of justice. Certainly this can be done, and it's done all the time. Yet at the same time, there's this question of how do you create justice? And I think that's a very profound question. And it's one, as a matter of fact, 
that Martin Luther King asked. How do you create systems of justice, not just fix systems of injustice? King's vision was that of the beloved community. He envisioned a community that was a sort of a recreation or a reconception of human society founded on justice. So, while he passionately fought against the injustices around him, yet he also had this other vision of creating another kind of society. And if we think in terms of the collective effort, how could, you know, individuals together and, uh, you know, in a collective way, create this beloved community, uh, have a constructive plan that creates systems of justice? Well, to me, one of the things that we would have to think is that such a system would have to largely be carried forward at the level of the grassroots. Masses of people are empowered to become participants in the creation of that society. So how would we do it? And the Baha'i faith, I think, offers some insights and some experience along these lines. But among the things that it suggests is that we would educate our children together, that we would train our youth in moral discernment and the ability to understand the forces at work in their lives and to make good choices for the cause of justice and even to engineer the path of their lives to be very conscious that whatever contributions that they make through their lives will need to serve the cause of justice or at least for a life to be well lived would need to serve the cause of justice. It would mean the creation of consultative forums, means of sharing and of problem solving, where the participation of all in some way or another is welcome as everyone becomes a part of the, the resolution of issues that we face. Now, we have, fortunately, in, in this country, a, a participatory democracy in the sense that uh, notwithstanding the injustices in our voting, <laughs> at least in principle, people get to participate in and we get to vote. But we also have a lot of um, uh, partisanship and a lot of vested interests. But what would happen if we could create a system where uh, we didn't allow these, these vested interests and this partisanship, but rather on a new basis where problems were being solved really for the, the good of all? then if we were able to do that and have everyone participating fully, then we may be well on our way towards the creation of that society. And don't ask me to describe what a beloved community looks like down to the last detail, but I think that uh, it's the, if we get the right process, then when we can begin to see those changes taking place. The quote talks about recognizing others as our family seeing those who are not family with the same love and intimacy as if they were our brothers and sisters. And it suggests that if we do this, our own difficulties will vanish. Ours, not theirs. I'm interested to know how you saw this in your own experience. I won't pretend fully to understand what is intended here by Abdu'l-Bahá. For me, the essence of it is truly learning how to love others. If we truly love others, then what this implies about our relationship to others is that we hold them as dear as we hold ourselves, perhaps more dearly than we hold ourselves. Uh, to truly love others removes a sense 
of distance and enables us, even if we can't fully understand, at least to try to understand and empathize with the difficulties and the sufferings and the pain that others have experienced. If I have a if I have a brother and my brother is going through a hard time, well, we can talk about that if he's my brother. And I can hear it and I can accept it. And if I've done something even that offends my own brother or has hurt him, then I, I can hear that and not be offended and I can try to be better. Also means that if I try to be of assistance to my brother, I don't do it in a paternalistic way. That is, I don't envision myself as my brother's savior but as my brother's brother, if I may put it that way, my brother being someone who has his own agency and his own powers of expression and his own potentials. And the joy of my life would be to see all of those potentials and all of those capacities that he has been endowed with to be fulfilled and to, and to flourish and to, uh, so that my brother makes his mark uh, in the world. It wouldn't be me helping my brother so that I get to make my mark as the helper of my brother. So you see the difference there. You know, it's an, it's an orientation towards others that's quite different from a sense of noblesse oblige or <laughs> however we may, we may put that, where, you know, the person with the resources and with the power gives a leg up to the people who don't have the resources or the power, but rather seeing them as agents in their own right. And uh, it's quite a, I think it's quite a different way of looking at the world. And I think this is what we're being called to. So, if we do that, we know what to do, in other words. So, if, if to the extent that we attain to it, my difficulty in relating to others that I may have becomes easier. And I'll say that it makes me more able to be a listener. It's made me more able to be a learner. It's made me more able to take thoughtful action. And so, I'm not saying that with certainty, I know that what I'm doing is always correct. <laughs> so I haven't quite maybe attained to the full expression of this statement. But I think that it, to the extent that I have, it has made my understanding of things better. Of course, you first read this as a child in the South, seeing racism and inequality all around you. And yet here we are, so many years later, discussing this quote in the era of George Floyd and the BLM movement. How do you feel about this quote at this moment? This, I think, was the closest I've ever seen to how it felt during the civil rights era. That is what we've seen since uh, George Floyd was murdered uh, a, a little over a year ago, and the, the unrest that it has caused and the dissatisfaction that has been expressed. And for me, this is actually... Uh, not a bad thing. It's a hopeful thing. Because as terrible as the injustice is, what is nice is that now there's a new consciousness of the seriousness of the issue of racism in the United States. Let me put it this way, a more widespread consciousness, because a lot of people already had that consciousness, particularly the victims of racism. But it's now more widespread. And I think there's a lot of thoughtful conversation going on and thoughtful action going on around the United States. So, even though we have a long way to go, and we have a long road ahead of us, what gives me hope is the nature of the conversations I'm beginning to hear. Also, I'm beginning to see a lot of evidence that in communities throughout the country, people are learning to come together in uh, environments 
that foster a sense of friendship, uh, of intimacy, of increasing trust and concern for the common good, the common welfare, and are learning how to put into place not just patterns of thinking, but patterns of behavior and patterns of interaction that bode well, that I think they pretend the, the capacity of human beings eventually to resolve these injustices that have been so much a part of the history of humanity, but particularly the history of the United States. But it's one, it's a path that will require sacrifice, that requires struggle, that requires effort, but I do think it's one that in the end will reach its goal. Ken, thank you for sharing these reflections this week on Moments of Meaning. The Baha'i teachings offer a consistent and crystal clear message on all forms of prejudice. Abdul Baha wrote, As to the religious, racial, national and political bias, all these prejudices strike at the very root of human life. One and all they beget bloodshed and the ruination of the world. Ken Bauer's experience growing up in American society suggests that cultural issues of prejudice, class and inequality are ingrained in today's society, challenging all of us to fight against racism regardless of our background or where we live. Elsewhere in his writings, Abdu'l-Bahá makes this clear. Ye who are servants of the human race, strive ye with all your heart to deliver mankind out of this darkness and these prejudices that belong to the human condition and the world of nature, so that humanity may find its way into the light of the world of God. This seems to mean that each one of us has to some degree inherited the ideas and prejudices of our parents, our peers and our culture. When we're children, just as Ken Bowers points out in his story of growing up in a racist society, we tend to spontaneously accept those attitudes, and they become part of the way we see the world and the way we behave towards others. They become embedded in our thoughts, our feelings and our social systems, and when that happens we forfeit true religion and spirituality, exchanging them for counterfeit superstitions as Abdu'l-Bahá made clear in this passage. True religion is the source of love and agreement amongst men, the cause of the development of praiseworthy qualities, but the people are holding to the counterfeit and imitation, negligent of the reality which unifies, so they are bereft and deprived of the radiance of religion. They follow superstitions inherited from their fathers and ancestors, To such an extent has this prevailed that they have taken away the heavenly light of divine truth and sit in the darkness of imitations and imaginations. In addressing this complex and vital issue, Baha'is are encouraged to adopt what is described in Baha'i literature as a humble posture of learning. Rather than dictating to others what to think and believe, we attempt to approach the problems of prejudice and racism with open hearts and a willingness to learn from others' experiences in the world. Without judgment or preconceptions, 
The Baha'i teachings say we can best work towards a more just and equitable society by listening, learning, and trying to understand why the oppressed have suffered for so long, and by doing everything we can to alleviate that suffering and rectify those inequities. For more about the Baha'i faith and the Baha'i writings, head to baha'i.org. For the podcast notes for this episode, try baha'iteachings.org forward slash moments of meaning. Moments of meaning is presented by Sean Hinton, sound engineering by Jamie Heath, researched by David Langness, and produced by Radiance, Andriana, and the team at baha'iteachings.org. <laughs>